0: This is A Limitless Possibility. I'm Yannick Magna. And I'm Luc Olivier-Dumeble. And our topic this week is...
1: Demystifying Core Migrations. Oh dear. We're, we're back to technical topics. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But first I have some follow-up. Uh, naturally, of course, it's mobile payments follow-up because that oh. is the only thing I know how to do these days. Um, so... We talked a little bit uh, recently about this promise that Ultra White Band would be coming to mobile payments eventually. Uh, There have been some tests, as I mentioned, with uh, Sueka and JR in Japan. Uh, While we're we're waiting for that to be an actual thing, there is a Kentucky Fried Chicken in Japan that decided to try something completely different. So you can now go to one KFC in Japan... Go to their drive-through, which I didn't even know KFCs had drive-throughs.
1: I guess the, uh, you mean the one in Japan, because come on, KFC I have drive-throughs here too.
0: Oh, I didn't know they had drive-throughs here as well. I've never seen one.
1: Okay, the one that are still open. Let's put it this way: some of them still have drive-throughs. But I can't
0: actually think of one that I've seen that has a drive-through.
1: Huh? Okay, maybe I've seen one or two in Montreal, but again, they're oh, all maybe, closed in yeah. Canada. So. But anyway, you, you can go to the KFC
0: drive through in Sa- Sagami Haracho, and you can pay using ETC, which is Electronic Toll Collection, uh, which you use to go on toll roads in Japan. They can now talk to the little uh, thingy in your car uh, and now you can basically pay for your KFC through that in the drive-thru, uh, which is much more convenient for people than uh, contactless is uh, given the whole COVID situation. So, I found that pretty interesting, um, but it does actually like give you a pretty good idea of what could be possible with ultra wide band if uh that becomes a thing. maybe you wouldn't actually have to do anything and just stay in your car and conveniently pay for things uh at a drive through or something to that extent. The next thing is something that uh I didn't necessarily see coming, and that is Apple Pay Passmo was announced to be launching in Japan this year uh so Basically Suica and Pasmo are the two major uh and interoperable more importantly uh mobile payment systems tied to the railways in Japan uh in Tokyo specifically. Uh so Suica is owned by JR and Pasmo is sort of I believe it's owned by a consortium of basically all of the major Tokyo area railways. Uh and like I mean they're interoperable meaning that you can go at a Pasmo gate with a Suica card and it works fine and vice versa. Um But if for some reason you are stuck with Passmo, uh, for example, if your commuter uh, pass is on Passmo because you don't have a choice, which I believe is dependent on which uh, railway you are using to get to work. uh, this means that you can now use Apple Pay. Uh, there was mm-hmm. a bunch of stuff with regards to the Apple Pay, uh, not Apple Pay, Passmo, the uh, the Mobile Passmo launch on Android, which f- seemed like it was a complete shitshow. Uh, so <laughs> we're going to hope that that doesn't r- uh, repeat itself with Apple Pay. Um, but considering that basically Mobile Passmo is a white-label version of the technology that JR made for Mobile Suica, they just basically changed the logo and hosted it on a different aws instance it should just work uh but again like the devil is in the details for this kind of stuff so i'm looking forward to finding out about this um but yeah looking forward to seeing that before the end of the year
1: okay so it's slowly but surely getting out throughout the remaining of 2020
0: i'm assuming by the way they're talking about it that'll probably either be ios 14 launch or ios Uh. 14.1
1: Okay, okay, I see. Okay, they're quite vague about the timeline still right now. They're just
0: saying before the end of the year. Oh, and wow. L- last time they said that, it was, I believe, when Suica came out, which was a one update uh, around October, November. So mm-hmm. that sounds about right.
1: Oh, huh. nice. We More mobile payments follow-up. Ooh.
0: Yeah, I've got I've got more. I'm just not going to share it on this episode because I don't want to take forever. Uh, but I am saving it for a future Contact Plus slash Mobile Payments follow-up episode because there is a lot of stuff happening recently. And I think it would be really cool to revisit the topic because it's been since literally the start of the show that we haven't really done that.
1: Are you saying that we'll have an episode two, part two? Maybe. Okay. So was that it for your Mobile Payments follow-up this week? Yes. Good. So let's go. Let's jump into my topic. So this week, uh, as I mentioned in the intro, uh, the topic is going to be highly on the technical side. So uh, as the name suggests, I'll be talking about Apple's Core Data framework and the out the art, excuse me, of migrating data from one model version to another. I kind of do expect that the audience for this topic will be quite laser focused to uh, iOS developers and even the ones that are currently using uh, Core Data. But again, uh, if you are an iOS developer, uh, you might have heard a lot of good and bad things about Core Data. And I do hope that uh, this episode will maybe lift the veil on some of those aspects of Core Data that people tend to struggle with including myself uh, up until recently so again uh, the main motivator behind this topic is related to some of the recent work i did uh, in my day-to-day job uh, because of a current feature my team is working on we had to write one of those migrations and i think as i mentioned a lot in the past and if i did not then i'll say uh, our app that i worked on uses co- core data quite heavily but migrations are not frequent Things we would do. So since it has been a long while since I wrote one or even the team has wrote one uh, and on top of that we were trying to migrate data in a way that our previous migrations was not doing it, Uh, I had to revisit a lot of documentation from Apple's Core Data Framework, books and even online tutorials. With all this knowledge I kind of decided to focus on this first on this part that are core data migrations and as you might expect this episode will have some assumption around basic knowledge of core data concept like what's a managed object what's a ma- managed object model and the entity and attributes definition compatible with uh, the core data framework so I'll explain it a bit but you really need to be uh, familiar Uh, about that so again uh, this week is going to be a bit more on the technical side so if you're just curious to hear me talk about how data can be stored in software uh, especially under iOS and even macOS uh, stay stick with us but maybe uh, you might uh, be lost and that's okay Uh, you'll be here uh, for the next episodes so let's buckle up and demystify this complex topic behind core data but before we talk about the migration th- themselves, we would need to discuss why would we need to do such thing uh, as migrating data in, in the software lifecycle. So as you might expect, uh, the software that you work on as an iOS developer. So the, the, the think that today, listeners, you are all iOS developers and you will need to do some of those uh, data changes. Um, so, your software evolves, you want to add new features, and the data it creates or interacts with needs to evolve with those functionality. And I guess the simplest example I can give you is allowing your software to store more data. So, let's say one day we're storing, I don't know, potatoes. So, description of potatoes. And the next day, you want to describe, uh, store like, uh, it's really a bad example i have a better <laughs> one for the rest of the episode don't worry it's just uh, on the spot but again the idea is throughout the evolution of the features you might end up storing more data or different types of data or even modernizing or evolving the current data that you have to make sure that we are following the team. that again like i said will be in the mindset that we are all iOS developers and that you've already made the decision of using Core data. that is non-negotiable for this episode. We love Core Data and we'll use it. So we will use it, uh we will describe our app model using Core Data as an entity model to describe such application data. And as you might already be familiar with, uh, And that's where we'll revisit what is an entity uh, and what's its attribute. So an entity is a model containing different entities, which is more or less different properties of an object. And also it describes also the relationship it has with other objects. Attributes see it as kind of dumb data payloads so again you might be familiar like it's like it's a field so it could be of string of type uh, of number of boolean or of an array of string stuff like that but the complex part is when you have a relationship uh, with different other entities uh, and relationship can be of type uh, to one or too many of course meaning they only relate to one other instances of a different object or they might relate to mul- multiple other ones um, and that's going to be important because it's kind of related to the problem I ran into uh, recently at work. So now that we kind of are in the mindset of uh, kind of knowing why we need to make a data, we don't have a clear example yet. And that's why I want us to have a clear example. So for the remaining of the episode, when we talk about the, the important concepts and the hard concepts of core data migrations, we always have an example to uh, relate to. And the example model I would like to use throughout this episode is car team, as you might expect, because it couldn't be an episode with me having something car related. <laughs> so I want to really keep it simple so we can really digest the, uh, the art concept of Coraline migration. So the model itself describing two entities will be really simple. The first one is a car and the second was a country. And uh, both entity are quite simple so the country entity is composed of two attributes uh, and one relationships the two attributes are uh, its name so let's say canada and of course canada is a string so it's a it's text and also country code so code uh, bec- also of type of string and you might expect like for canada it's ca for us it's us uh for i guess Sweden, it's S-E. Uh, for Japan, it's GP. So those more like two-letter codes that are uh, uniquely composed. Uh, this is what the uh, country entity will store. Name and its code. On top of that, we would like to know and build a relationship containing all the cars that are built in said country. And that's where we have a relationship that points to an array of car objects called cars built here and again because i said cars with an s we assume that there is more than just one car built in one set country so we will have a too many relationship uh, for the car entity again quite simple we'll keep it simple we don't want it to be, it be super complex uh, we will have two attributes one of both of them of type string so brand and model so of course the car entity describe a familiar car my Focus RS, so they will have like Ford in model, in brand, and Focus RS or Impreza in the model entity and uh, model attribute. And last but not least, we will have a relationship back to country, just to know in which country this car is built into. And for for right now, for our first version of our application where we store kind of like assume that we're kind of building a wikipedia of all the car models built around the world and where they are built from so car will have a relationship back to country that uh its name will be just built in said country so we know where it is built and again uh, in our version one of our application a car can only built in one country so again it's a bit of an old school a car model we don't like a, there's no globalization yet in our application like one car model is only built in one place around the world for everywhere so you kind of see where I'm going with some of the maybe changes we would like to do uh, in our application the more it evolves and so yeah so we'll start with that and let's call it our application model version one and that's what we ended shipping out. So we have our car logger app, which contains uh, like somebody might just like have a logbook of the cars they they've uh, seen in the streets and where they're built from and stuff like that. And that's our app on the app store. So as you might expect, we as developer of this app, we receive a lot of feedback from our customers, um, and they're like pretty vocal. They want specific features, and they want to expand the features app. So To build those new features, we might have to adjust or add new data, uh, new ways to store data in our model. And when using Core Data, this entity model, so the the file that is describing all of our entities and its attributes and relationship, every time you need to change it, you always need to wrap it into a, a new version. So let's say every couple of versions uh, or maybe even every version you release on the App Store, you always make some changes. So you can go quickly from version 1 to version 2 to version 3 of the whole model. And that's literally when migrations comes into play because Core Data needs to know what to do with your data from, from your old version of your app to the new version. It needs to know how to migrate it from one model to the other uh, one conception of the world to the next and depending of your uh, required changes cordata offers two types of migrations uh, and those two are the first one named lightweight migrations and the latter one the other one excuse me is heavyweight migration uh, you might have also seen uh, other literature calling them both lightweight called being called automatic and heavyweight called manual um, but for the sake of, uh, of simplicity for this episode, we'll call them what Apple calls them in their documentation. So lightweight and heavyweight. So tonight I want to cover them both. But before we cover them both, we'll start with the easiest one to implement to go to the more complex one. Before I move on, Yannick, do you have any questions? Is my example model clear enough? Is there something I need to clarify just before we go into the more uh, nitty gritty details of the topic? No, it's all good. Perfect. So lightweight migration. um Lightweight migrations is what Apple assumes are the kind of typical changes you'll do part of your software apps models evolving. So a couple of examples may be renaming or adding, renaming and deleting uh, an entity and attribute. So you don't care about data; it's easy. Like you delete it and you go forward there's a couple of other things that are interesting that you might not assume that Cordata is able to do it by its own for example uh, attributes on Cordata can be considered optional so to to save it it either needs to have a value or not so that's what we mean by optionality and changing the optionality attribute on an attribute so you can go from an optional attribute to a non-optional Or you can go from a non-optional to uh, an optional attribute, which is always easy already because uh, non-optional, you already have data in the database. And then uh, to go to optional, who cares about this? Like you lift restriction. Of course, when you add a restriction uh, for Core Data to do some stuff for free for you, hence the kind of nickname automatic migration, it requires you to set a default value. So that's always important in your model when you will change the optionality levels when you go to non-optional do you use a default value if not you might need to uh do some stuff yourself which is the theme of uh, our other type of migration uh the other thing that, that we've learned recently because that's kind of related to the problem we had is changing the uh the two the two one to two many relationship uh so relationship can you do be like two one objects or like to two one. right it's when i say two ones zero or one or too many so zero one or many uh, you can change uh, this attribute so a good example is one of our relationship our object um, a good example here could be on our cars uh, the uh, relationship to countries that is called built in uh, we could say built in again but it is not a relationship to only one or zero country instances but it's to zero one or many Country instances to talk about globalization, and let's say in version two of our application, we would do this change, and Core Data would be able to know how to move from version one of our model to version two. The uh, nice is because on top of that, uh, lastly for relationship is that in Core Data, uh, relationship can have can have an order. So same thing, the same way that there's like uh, more restriction an attribute can have. A relationship can also have more restrictions. So they can either be ordered or non-ordered. And of course, uh Data is able to do a lot of magic tricks for you when you move from a non-ordered to an ordered relationship or vice versa. So as you can see already, if you've built an app and work with app models, you can realize that a lot of what I'm saying already is, I would say maybe 75, 80% of the changes uh, you would do to an app model. Um, I don't have the exact, exact number here. Um I forgot, to be honest, I forgot to really count it. But I think we, like, at work, we have, like, 17, 18 versions of our models. And out of those 18, uh, I think there is four, five migrations that are non lightweight so all the other ones there are simple we just want to add fields we want to add entities because we just want to store more data our app is evolving more and more as more functionality and for those functionality to be empowered we need more data and because overall most core data applications and i say most if not all but most are using SQLite as a backing store, which means like the SQLite databases is used by Cordata to store those objects uh, onto disk. Uh, as a quick reminder, Core Data can also do uh, PDF space, which I've never seen. But the other one that we've also used uh, really useful for unit tests is uh, in-memory store. So it stores in memory and then when your app kills, it all disappears, but really useful for unit tests uh, to test your logic. But if you're using SQLite store, uh, you should know that the core Data framework won't copy your data from one database to the other to migrate to the Eurostore. Uh, core data will be smart enough on some of those small changes to issue the appropriate SQL statements to execute this migration. And you might be like, why are you talking about copying data? And I want, don't want to talk too much about it because it is one of the big important aspects of heavyweight migrations, but I still have a couple of things to say about Lightweight migration so remember here that because core data is not a database framework it is kind of an object relationship manager framework you even if you decide to use uh, sQlite store you will never really execute SQL yourself you kind of need to think in the end that get your operations your object operation get transformed into uh, SQL languages and that it is stored in the database so you might run into typical database limitations but in the end it's sh- in most cases, and I'll, I'll tread lightly <laughs> here, in most cases, you don't need really to think about that. But Apple is telling you that when you use SQL, SQLite as a backing store plus lightweight migration, they've done a lot of optimization for it to go fast because you might, as you might expect, having a shit ton of data and you need to copy one object one by one can be time consuming, but can give you great powers to customize all this object gets transformed from one version to the other. Uh, But before we go into those details, a couple of uh, small points uh, we need to know. Uh, While I say that people always call lightweight, some people call a lightweight migration as automatic migration, it's kind of half true. Uh, Yes, they are automatic, but this behavior is not enabled by default. It is important that you uh, enable two options in uh, your NS Persistence Store Coordinator object. So that's one of the object part of your Corretto stack in your application. As you see today, I won't go into what I strongly believe as uh, what is the perfect coordinator stack. Um, I have there's a lot of different opinions on the web. You'll see different architectures of iOS application, um, and I think you you can define your own and today is not the goal of me defining what i think is a good one for specific trade-offs uh, but all of those different type of stacks will always use an ns persistent store coordinator instance in them and that's more or less where to talk to the backing st- uh, the object that helps you talk to the backing store and there's two uh, option keys that is important to set for uh lightweight migration to more or less become automatic first one is called ns migrate persistent store Automatically option, you turn it to on, and also NS infer mapping model automatically option, and we're like, okay, uh, the first one like like migrate store automatically, yeah, okay, Corelduck knows what to do, and I say, if you know what to do, do it for me, and I'll be okay. The other one is a bit weird when you think about its name, if you, especially if you don't really understand how the was like infer mapping model automatically. And a mapping model we'll see in the everyweight migration is literally what tells Cordata to to know what to do from your all your entities, all your attributes, all your relationship version ones to go to version two. And when the changes are limited or simple, like the one I mentioned before, Cordata is able to do, okay, okay, I know what to do to go to there, like adding a new entity, uh, doesn't affect the existing data. Maybe there's new relationship to that data. Fair, uh, but data shouldn't care too much for lightweight migration. So it able to know that and also infer this object, this model that it needs. Uh, it, that's its system needs to do. So that's more or less why people call them automatic. Is because all the documentation you'll see will always ask you to enable those flags and turn them on. But it does mean that if you want to have a bit more control, and that is my understanding of the framework, it's not an option that I've personally uh, played with uh, to this date because I don't I don't see right now why you would. But again, you'll see even with lightweight and heavyweight migration that the core framework is really flexible, allows you to do a lot of things, allows you to burn yourself a lot too if you think about it. But again, you could in theory say, I want my mapping model to be inferred so I get this niceties of lightweight migration but I want to tell uh, my core the stack when to run it. So I want to be uh, in control of that or I always want to define the mapping model and that's kind of, I would say not the niceties but that's what you mean. Like if you need to always define the model, this is literally what Apple calls an heavyweight migration. So, While heavyweight migration are quite flexible and will cover uh, most of this day-to-day evolution of your entity model, you might encounter bigger changes. And of course, bigger changes might mean you need a different tool, a bigger tool to help you with this uh, task. And that's where heavyweight migration comes into play. Any last, maybe some comments, Yannick, uh, about heavyweight migration? Things you want me to clear up or that you recall from your old iOS days?
0: I've never actually had to deal with heavyweight migrations uh, in the brief period of time that I used Core Data. Uh, I was mostly using Core Data as a read-only option, to, basically for the conveniences of the ORM layer more mm-hmm. than anything else. Uh, and yeah, I never really had to deal with heavyweight migrations.
1: More because you didn't evolve too much your app data model or because you were always like trashing it and recreating it all the time?
0: Yeah, it was just easier to
1: trash everything and start mm. over. <laughs> yeah, um, it is part of... Um, it, it is part... Because also on our app, a lot of the data is cache. It's more or less cache data. So it's not like something you've created on your iPad that might not be synced with the server. Right. Uh, so if a migration fails, we're like, shrug, delete the, the stack and start from scratch. And then, you know, you'll be logged out and all that fun stuff. So uh, a lot of the syncing will restart. But for sure to kind of have a quick first upgrade uh, like user experience, uh, that's where we uh, we put a lot of emphasis on that too. And that's why we try as much as we can to migrate and try to recoup some of those errors to make sure that we can either retry the migration or last resort, just do the delete. But again, we will try to not resort to that as kind of the first option.
0: Funnily enough, like I'm, I am I use entity framework at work every day, so I'm like, used to hearing more or less the same terms or equivalent terms thrown around because they're very similar in terms of what they actually do uh, to core data. And I've never actually worked anywhere where we let Entity Framework touch the uh, layout of the database at all. It's always handled manually in uh, SQL Server Management Studio. And Mm -hmm. uh, it's either mapped through code generation, kind of like you would, I guess, with something like a Mo generator or something like that.
1: Or even the Apple one.
0: Yeah, right. Uh, and it just like spits out model classes and everything just happens. But the framework itself never actually manipulates the layout of the tables at all. Or uh, we do handmade mappings, which is really long and tedious, which is why I've written my own tools to more or less like do the same handmade mappings Procedurally, which is actually really fun when it works, which is about only eighty percent of the time, but whatever. <laughs> but yeah, so like we don't really have any migrations in it that are handled by the framework at any moment. We always do it ourselves with SQL uh, uh, functions or basically like scripts that we run when we deploy. So it's going to be interesting to see how uh, Core Data does it because I don't actually know how it works.
1: Yeah, and I, I think with what you just said, I'll just go on a small tangent about the way CoreData stores data. Um, like I mentioned, you can have what they call bagging store is because because CoreData is not a kind of a, a database framework. Uh, I think uh, there are great third-party frameworks built on top of SQLite uh, if you want to have kind of like a bit of object-based but really object an object representation of your tables in your database. Uh, FMDB. There, yeah, and uh, I think there's a new version uh, that is Swift-based, I think from GRDB. I don't know, like, they like, I have to find it and I'll put it in show notes. But with the same thing as FMDB, uh, just a, a thin layer that gives you kind of database objects uh, that are not really... Uh, and that's where of is trying to make this uh, m- mental model shift because the, their i thinking is, what you should be describing is your application model, not the way it should be stored in a database. And sadly, I think that's where sometimes the, the the perception of a layer breaks because the way you model your data needs to work in the way that you can model the data to go in a database, especially in a relational database like right. SQLite. Uh, so that's why you would need to modify your... Objects, your entities your attributes and even if you don't control the layout of the tables in the sql sql database you always end up going you go peek through it and to be honest like we have done part of by coding the migration i would look at the database to just say oh is my data in the end at the right place and did the, the right transformation because even if i am kind of at this object level uh, I still want to make sure that the way it is stored in database uh, comes out correct even if I don't control the layout of the tables inside database because a lot of the examples I've seen like maybe 75-80% of people I know uses that uses Core Data are using SQLite as a backing store but there are other options so Apple as with Core Data can do different optimization to the way the data is stored depending of the backing store it uses hence why they don't want you to do sqlite stuff but uh, they want you to know about it because most cases will be stored there and you might have to debug some stuff because you might have performance issue yeah So it's, it's interesting to see the perspective with uh because it's been a while since i did entity model uh but that the fact that you really kind of like have this object model on top of your database but you still rely heavily on you understanding sql and like writing your own sql for it to work correctly
0: well, it's not so much writing it to work correctly. It's more like since the backing store for entity Framework can be like literally any database server and not just like SQLite and lists and stuff like that. Um, like there's a lot of rich functionality that SQL server has built into it that is not necessarily exposed if you're accessing through Entity Framework because it's not necessarily the case that all backing stores are going to have that functionality. And that's sort Ah, of like where you lose that common denominator thing where it actually bites you in the ass. Uh, So given the cost of SQL SQL Server licenses, I think it's reasonable to want to actually use almost all of the functionality that you have in that package (laughs) as opposed to just using what Entity Framework uh, exposes to you. And for that reason, I think it's like, it's more realistic for us to actually handle the mapping ourselves, than leave it in the hands of, uh, entity framework. And then like, let's say you update the framework and it's like, oh, well I need to do all these automatic migrations, but then half your functions stop working. Like that is not something we want to do. We want to leave it like hard coded so that everything in the database side continues to work correctly.
1: Hmm. i see i see oh, that's quite interesting because uh again it's been a while since i look at other orm like uh frameworks and it's uh glad to hear your uh, experience with it
0: this uh, is not an endorsement for database-based programming this is just how things
1: are done by the way that's a fair point fair point uh though so now that you mentioned uh owning and more taking ownership of how things happens when you need to do migration I think it's a good segue to start talking about the heavyweight migration. <laughs> and again, to properly understand how heavyweight migration works, we really need to understand how data would run. I say any migration uh, because, again, uh, as I mentioned in lightweight migration, data will do optimization that won't follow uh, the following approach. But to understand how data run those migrations, it will help us know where we should insert our custom code for our migration to work correctly because we don't need to define it all ish and i'm trying not to spoil the remaining so i'll I'll move forward but it will be important to understand how what apple calls this three-stage approach to migrations work because you need to understand where you need to have your custom code to maybe normalize a field that you want to have in your now database or change relationship and the three stage approach to migration starts that when your migration begins you will end up for a short amount of time of course depending on the length of your migration you will end up having two database ish kind of because and that's why apple will say you have two whole stack because, as I mentioned a bit in lightweight migrations, when you want to go full custom, core data needs to copy an object at a time. So it will take all the data from one store, move it to the one, but really read the data, copy it, and move it to the other one. It really need to recreate each entity and each of the data in its ent- in its attributes and relationship for it. To complete so that's why we have those this source stack and this destination stack uh, which are like represented by our source ns manage object context and a destination ns manage object context um, because those two stacks are used between those three stages and the three stages are the following stage one using all the source entities and objects a mapping model and possibly zero to a multiple or uh, uh, zero to the same number or even more uh, number of entity you have in your store. You'll have equivalent entity policy objects. You will need, like Core will recreate all your destination objects. So at first, so let's say uh, we reuse our example. We have car and country. So we'll go all through all the car, apply the, the, the transformation and recreate them but it won't recreate the relationship. It will do that, just take the objects, take the attributes, re- do the transformation, recreate them. It does that for car, country. Once that's done, then the system can move to stage number two, where in stage number two, now that the objects are all created in the destination stack, you can, re- like Core Data will and allow you to customize all you recreate all the relationship between those said ob- destination objects Again, following your mapping models and zero to multiple entity policy objects. Once that's all done, Data calls you again and say, "A" and also calls itself, depending if you have customized this part of the migration or not, and ask you, do you need to perform custom validation on each object now that they've been recreated and transformed? They have all their relationship. Are you sure? Because that's the last time. If you need to perform uh, like, a data, uh, perform a data validation, it is the time to do so to make sure that the migration happened correctly because you might need to change some a couple of things before you do that or you want to have kind of a, a post-migration call that would be there where you do that. A part of those three stages, I've mentioned a couple of things new. Uh, first, the mapping model and the entity policy objects. And those two are used to customize and run code at each of these stage. But first we'll start to talk about the mapping model file because it's literally the base of the migration. Just a quick reminder before I go and do that. As I mentioned, uh, today we'll be talking about the concepts and not about how you would create a code stack to run those. Uh, so there's going to be assumption and i'll leave a couple of links uh there's uh, going to be a good book that i really love about core uh you've heard me talk about uh this website objective c obc.io uh they've done a great book on core um i think it's maybe using swift 4 so again we're not too far we're at swift 5 so the language changes shouldn't be too much of a hurdle for the content in it but they've showed uh I think that's maybe the only opinion I will have about the stack in general, but I think what they showed in their book is quite great. And they also clearly explain their trade-offs about why they think their version of the stack is good for most uh, people in this book. And also they talk about how to build a system that runs migration. So I won't be talking too much about that, but the idea is to say that, imagine you have a stack that needs to find, okay, before I start my migration, I need to tell Corridor, Go find this mapping model because to run a migration, Cordeta will need that. Whether it is a Nixie mapping model, five, a file, excuse me, or, um, the, uh, equivalent custom, uh, subclass entity migration policy class or the equivalent. It's up to you to define it. Um, because the file itself is a bit complex to work with. I'll spend most of my time today talking, talking about a mapping model file, also known as XC, XC mapping models. So to create them in Xcode, you do file new, you go in a small core data section where you can either create a, a, a entity model or a mapping model. And when you select mapping model, it, it will ask you to take a source version and a destination version, And it is again like with lightweight migration, it is able to start to build kind of lightweight-ish description of how your data should be moved from one version to the other. Before I go on to that, there's one powerful aspect about core data is it can skip version. So remember my example from like the app I work on where we're like at version one and we have version 18. Uh, I could say I will create a mapping model from version one to version 18. And that would allow people, let's say, I don't know, uh, somebody is running an old version and then it's not updating and then manually updates the app and I've skipped a couple of version. I could have an easier path to migrate the data from version one to version three or version four than doing version one to two, two to three, three to four.
0: Yeah, I think the most common case that you would actually encounter with this is let's say somebody gets an iPhone and they keep using it until there are no more OS updates for it, and they keep using your app on whatever the last version for the OS they have installed is, and then right. they upgrade their phone and they jump to iOS fourteen, let's say. Right. Well, then they can get over that gap much quickly, much more quickly.
1: Right. Um, again, my personal suggestion is always to go sequential. Uh, I think it is easier for uh your own uh mental model of things to make sure you don't forget anything that you uh and also to test. I realize that <laughs> to test when you have smaller change in between and also test your migration it's also easier. but again, the idea here to say is that Corledo is flexible enough to jump some of the middle steps and be like. I've seen some examples on tutorials I follow that say, oh, my version 3 uh, is something I did wrong. I corrupted data. So of course I don't want to corrupt data and fix it. I might want to say, oh, uh, somebody that was in my version 2 and then I, I release my next version and the model goes to version 3 but I, I coded a bug. So I do a quick patch to go to version 4. Then I would maybe do 2 to 4 for the people Um that are still not up to date to the version I es- skip a data bug
0: i have a dumb question about uh the sequential nature of these migrations uh i i should know the answer to this because i think you told me before but i've completely forgot and it's relevant so why not ask it on the show um, <laughs> Back in the day, uh, when you launched an app, before your app sort of became responsive, it ran all of the core data migrations. And one of the things that could happen is I think if it didn't finish within something like 10 or 15 seconds, uh, your app would crash because a watchdog would say, you're holding up the responsiveness of the UI. And it's not technically your fault as the app developer, because it's kind of core data that's taking forever, not you. Well, okay, okay. That's okay,
1: let me finish because that kind of already tins my answer, but let me finish.
0: I mean, there are probably things you can do, but like, for the novice user, it's not necessarily obvious that that's why it's, it crashes. Uh, my question is more or less like, did they ever move that out of the launch process and later into the app launch so that it
1: doesn't actually kill your app on launch? Um, the always did that it's just that again a lot of the tutorial as some assumes the kind of the i would say the easy path to core data and what you didn't realize is you made an assumption that by maybe uh, instantiating in a specific object I, f- I won't name any because i forgot which one will just trigger that automatically Ah, uh, okay but yes if you add the settings i was talking before or you it would try to do the migration Maybe in a moment that you don't want the migration to run, or maybe you want to have a UI up so that your app says, "Okay, uh, the app has started; the it is responsive, but the user interaction is blocked." That's something we do. We, when we first launch the app, whether it's the first time, uh, no, that would be for uh, after an update. We look uh, is do we need to migrate our store? And if they if our stack says yes, we literally, I'd say. Block the UI, but we block the user experience. Uh, this is a good moment for us to show our, our what a nice what's new with a bit of marketing and say, hey, here's the new features in the app for this version. Uh, and then there's a progress bar and says, okay, yeah, uh, our kind of our. I don't think we have word, but I've seen some of our apps at word. They say, hey, we we uh, they have some like fun sentences like hey uh wait a sec we're just like a migrate we're just like touching your data or uh wait a sec we'll be back in a sec some some fun stuff like that i forgot the exact sentence but like there's ways where you can tell the Whoa, don't create a stack yet just tell me before i ask you to create the whole uh, like ns persistence coordinator and all those fun objects if i do that are you going to run animation behind my back and the will be like yes (laughs) Or, oh, no, 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 if you call me, I'll return you an error because you need to start a migration before you can call me. So you can build your user experience to uh, allow your user to be aware that that happens, but also to tell the OS that that is also happening and that you're not blocked because you have handled it correctly. Uh, The idea, I think, for this is really to make sure that you have a, a quick start and then sadly that you maybe block your user or maybe your app has a way to... Let you go in the background, like really run in the background while the u i is front most is not uh relying on the core data store uh for the app I worked on, we rely heavily on a data store, so it will be quite impossible for our user to use our app without it being live so that's why we ask them to wait um and usually uh with automatic update these days uh iPads are updated frequently uh so going sequential one after the other works great. So it's not too much, uh too long. But again, we store a lot of data. So we've seen progress, like especially on slow iPad, can take minutes, not seconds. So you need to be aware about that. And there's some techniques uh we haven't used too much, but Apple described some techniques in their uh, documentation. I'll be posting a link in the show notes to their old, old Data documentation. <clears throat> Excuse me. Because that's sadly part of the new apple documentation that died so it's in the archive uh, but still available <laughs> the typical uh and a lot it's funnily enough a lot of what i had to reread to understand migration correctly was lost in those it was like, kind of hard to find because even if they start to slowly but surely rewrite the documentation it's like a lot of it is not migrated again just not to make a bad pun <sighs> uh, but yeah so yeah so well, long story short that's what you have to do to kind of like make sure you don't block the main thread and then the west is like oh you've blocked the main thread or you haven't started the app in 10 seconds what's up and so basically
0: trashed. you're saying that everybody read the same bad tutorial and replicated the same mistake into their apps and it, we're the, technically to blame but we feel stupid because we did what we were told and it wasn't the good thing
1: and i wouldn't be surprised that this tutorial is from apple like yeah, i wouldn't yeah, be surprised probably. it's a typical corporate tutorial because i recall it's a while back that we had to like, and that's why we like the Cordero book is we had to read from not Apple's documentation, <laughs> how to understand migrations. And you know, like throughout the, you, you're trying to find the hidden corners of the Apple documentation, even before it got like all the archive it was not the archive uh, because, okay, no, I don't want to say that yet, but because it's hard, right? It's not yeah. easy. Uh, but once you learn it, it's like mind blown. And that's what I'm trying to do in this episode. It's kind of, Made you find this easy in the end, even if it's not.
0: Okay. Well, it was more of a problem back in the iPhone 3G days when you had literally like a potato processor to actually like do the job.
1: Whereas now
0: it's probably faster. Although, like like you said, like it doesn't mean it's going to be super instant too. It can
1: still take nope. minutes. But it could st- if you store a shit ton of data, it can take minutes. Uh, even on like iPad Pros, it can take a couple of seconds with the dip- especially we have a lot of like we have. A- I work on a point-of-sale system, so we have a lot of inventory data. So uh, depending on your inventory size, even on iPad Pro, it can take a couple of seconds to migrate the store.
0: Yeah, Brent, Brent Simmons is a big advocate of using core data by default unless you need to fix things for uh, performance reasons. And th- the example that he brings up a lot that I think is sort of applicable here in the context of the migrations is uh, when you want to do a mass update, and I think this is no longer true, but it used to be true, you have to iterate every single object in a collection one by one to update the field on all of them. Whereas in SQL, you can just do an update statement that updates everything at once. And it's super fast, Uh, but it was significantly slower to do mass uh, updates before in core data. And so if you were doing something like Mark all as read in NetNewswire, newswire, uh, it would take a long ass time. If you weren't actually going through a SQL backend to do that yourself, I think they've added something since then to actually do mass updates
1: that are, more responsive there is i forgot the exact name but something like ns batch operation yeah uh but again uh like you mentioned it is goes uh what you're describing a bit goes not against but contradicts the way uh core data works core data works on object not data and that kind of sounds weird when you think about it but it works on objects so to change something you need to have the object in memory change it and then tell it to save and it's why a lot of people are doing that uh, and it, there's a couple of limitations with, with those operations you can do batch delete batch update batch create but again they, they circumvent a lot of the typical core stack if you were to just do a for loop right yeah so you have to do it like you you kind of need to do like okay i'll do the batch and it, again i haven't played with it so if i record it, it's like you have to do the batch update then it wait for it to be confirmed that it's updated and then tell Corda refresh yourself and then it will kind of recreate all of its cache, and then oh, okay, the database has changed. Crap, it, I need to recreate not all of my cache. clean, but no,
0: it solves the problem, and like that—that's right. kind of the issue. Is like I, I get at the conceptual level why core data behaves the way it does, and it makes a lot of sense for most applications. But then you run into these weird ass—it doesn't even feel like an edge case. It just feels like common cases that are just badly suited for the model that core data has sometimes and it's nice that they gave us an out that we can actually use to do these things uh even if it's a little bit weird
1: right totally and speaking of weird things we'll continue talking about the mapping model <laughs> file um so again it is a file that allows you to do version one to two and is able to describe okay uh my name goes to destination.car.name. Like, you, we have, it uses a, a weird, specific language that, from what I've understood, so is something I still don't really understand how it works. But from what I understood from the documentation, it is based on NS expression. So it literally takes the string in that file and then run it as code. Which is funny because also there's like kind of special, like, keywords you can use in those strings to say like a dollar sign source, dollar line dollar sign destination to really reflect this duality of stack, the source stack that I'm mentioning earlier and the destination. And also maybe you will say, okay, no, I need to uh, normalize the field. So I will ask my uh, entity policy, go take the source data, call this method on the entity policy using this uh, weird specific language on an next expression. So yes, again, it it describes all of this and then it uses this weird language to recreate the attributes, recreate the relationship and again, allow, allows you to be inserted at each of those levels. And that's where mapping customization comes into play. Um, yeah, um, again, each entity mapping can be customized by providing a subclass of NS entity migration policy. And again, like a lot of the, I will say old school, but bear with me, but the old school Apple frameworks that are based on the Objective-C runtime, which is kind of a file on your IDE that you put strings in it and then it kind of do uh, NS class from string, stuff like that. I uh, love it. <laughs> again, I'm using this just to really reflect that it, a lot of those core Data functionally are based on every Objective-C runtime functionalities which if you have a lot of other new niceties of Apple it kind of fits a bit weird but that's something for later uh, you can provide a class name that is a class a, excuse me a subclass of NS Entity migration uh, in your code base and the idea is to go back to our three stages approach step zero Cordella goes through the file and see if you have subclass defined We'll create those ent- those entity migration policies objects and then we'll start the migration because those objects have methods you can override to be called when stage one begins, when stage one ends, when stage two begins. They're not called stage two. They really have names like create destination instances with the source instances create the destination relationship with and then you also have those events like beginning the creation of objects beginning the create an end of creation of objects beginning the so you really really can customize a lot of things using ns entity migration and really more or less track and insert a custom code without with or without relying with the uh DSL, us called this way, based on an NS, NS expression that you find inside the XC mapping model. And I think that's where this duality comes really into play because by default, when you create from version one to two, Corda will insert a lot of those uh, DSL based on an X expression for you. And it's kind of doing a bit what, as much as it can, what a lightweight migration would do. So it knows like, okay, you haven't renamed the entity, so you really want to just copy the data from one entity to the other. Uh, And at the place it doesn't know what to do, which sadly doesn't tell you, so you need to find out where it is. (laughs) Uh, You just say, okay, I want to do something different or tell me what to do here because I don't know what to do. Again, uh, those, like imagine this file is a mapping from entity to entity. It creates like... For our example model, it will create a car to car migration, uh, but not migration, but mapping. It will create a country to country mapping. If you want to create a country to car for a specific reason, you can. Correlate again when you go in heavy mode, like in art mode. Let's put it this way, you can do whatever you want. Of course, Xcode tries to be kind with you and try to say, okay, no, you just want to do like this change that I understand, so it won't create weird things for you, but my point is to say that a mapping is not be to be required to be from two entity of the same type it could be from two different entity if it makes sense for you again not something i have experience with just i know the software allows you and the way the framework is built allows you to go to those crazy weird things but you could dip i don't know why but from one version of that you could deprecate like, i don't know you could say that car doesn't exist in version two it's like called automobile. And not a rename, really. It's like marketing name. And then you can really go crazy about renaming, changing the name of properties. Like a brand is no longer a name. It is uh, another object. And then really build and rebuild those relationships. And that's sometimes where my mind gets blown still. Uh, because you really need to focus on the changes you need. Hence, going back to my advice, you really should go sequentials because you want to minimize the number of changes in your model. The, change, the simpler it is, the simpler it is for you to also do the, to understand what's going to happen in the migration. So going back to NS entity migration policy allows you to go into those all stage, but also because using the NS expression language, NS based, uh, language based on NS expansion, you can define your custom methods, And you could use to transform your data. I think the the best example we've seen in our application was to do a typical data transformation. Um, A good example would say we have our car. uh, Let's say we have a nice UI. It's a table view and it is sorted by the brand name. And somebody in Europe enters COIDA which i forgot correctly i didn't take note of my example but i think skoda has a kind of a there's uh this uh like weird o i forgot is it o or oh, whatever it has a non-ascii character let's put it this way i'll go into uh database term directly and for your like for your your sorting to be fast you need to know that as in the end, to go back to database, like, you know that SQL doesn't like to do sorting with, like, uh, non-ASCII characters. So, uh, you might want to sort by a normalized field that would get rid of a lot of the characters that, uh, string sorting in SQLite doesn't work. So you start by doing the normal sorting and then you realize, oh, it's an object-based sorting where it just it takes an array of the object loaded in memory and then just do uh, an S localized compared on it. Uh, and then you realize, okay, with the ten, a hundred cars, not so bad. With nice phones that we have, but you have a crazy customer that has ten thousand cars in his a car logger, and then he starts to scroll, and then it, with his a nice iPhone 11 Pro, scrolling slows down after the five, six, seven first results, and then you debug and debug, and then that's where we realize, oh yeah, it's because my sorting is not done at the database level where again, like Kenny was mentioning about updating data, uber fast, like that relationship database, relational databases are really powerful to do that. But when you, mont- you you go above at the object level, that's when it slows down. So you could write this migration where in your entity migration policy, you have a normalized brand name for string. And then you would just say, okay, I, uh, this language has a dollar sign entity policy str- like variable that you can use in those text field dot normalize brand name for string calling source dot brand. So this tells the, the the mapping, okay, take my source object dot my source object and its attribute brand, ask the migration policy, call this method with this data and then that's what my destination should store for version two and now you would have every time we recreate the object and that's why this stage of like you need to recreate all the object one 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 allows you to have transformation on your objects and the other thing is while those stages are run sequentially so one two three four it is important to note that it does again all the tt for stage one so it will do again car and country and you might ask is there a specific order there that they can be run yes they are if you and sad because podcast so I won't be able to uh, uh, show you a picture but if you were to ever see a mapping file you'll see that those remember those car to car mapping and then you have in the same file a country to country mapping those when you create your mapping your mapping file by default by Xcode like Xcode is fun you just create a random order in them <laughs> but what I've learned recently and that's one that that's one of those other mind blown moments with Core Data was like Ah, that's why before I was seeing seeing a weird order and I was not able to understand the order, is because the order of the mappings in the mapping file is what Coretta uses to go from each entity. So let's say you want, I don't know why, I don't suggest that you do that because like ordering, like having a dependency on, on order of operation can be brittle. But let's say you have a requirement that does that you can reorder in the mapping file which mapping is executed first. Which say, Let's say Cordeda was kind with us it does car and country, so alpha typical, alphabetical order. Let's say we want to do country and car. It's easy because we have only two choices because two entities, but let's say we have three, we could have more choices. Uh, but then it will run stage one. Let's start with country, then create all the entities for cars. Stage one is complete stage two let's create all the relationship for country first then with car because in the mapping file the order of the map the entity mapping is what sets how the entities are migrated at each stage and that is important so if you have problems with that where by accident you go to a new version and then xcode does something and you didn't realize that your previous migration was relying on a random order that xcode just generated in that file Maybe look at that because uh, that is not something I've seen in documentation. That's literally something I out by while debugging and setting specific NS entity migration policy on each classes and seeing in which order they're gaining call. Lastly, uh, I want to talk about getting rid of that mapping model file. Um, if you're somebody that likes code and only code, you might be cringing to a lot of the things I've seen. Like, oh, uh, the order in the file, it depends like, is the order that the the code is run and that Xcode kind of like does an affash job of like you create one mobile file, you just create one order. You would delete it and create another file. It would just do a different order because it (laughs) it wants to, right? And on top of that, the mapping file is kind of a weird XML-based file format. Uh, You might want in the end to create the same description of logic yourself using code and this is where ns mapping model comes into play because it contains again a series of ns entity mapping instances and again you could yourself ditch the mapping like the xc mapping mixy mapping whoop, i'm blanking on an xc mapping model and ditch that file and then just build a lot of class and while I haven't experimented with this approach, I again, I, I strongly can see some benefits. Uh, the mobile the mapping model file is really hard to diff uh, because it's a mix of XML, weird, kind of like compiled. There's a bit of binary data in it too. So when you look at it in Git, it is really hard to understand what is what is the consistency of this migration? And having code could make it for simpler reproduction of past migration. Let's say, again, you want to, you do a migration where you normalize a field or the other example uh, uh, we run into that was the new one that uh, forced me to go back is uh, we were changing our relationship to go from to one to too many. Yeah, that's fine. Lightweight migration. But uh, it was kind of an allowed, list type of thing and we needed to fill it with data so after the migration the the relationship went from uh to one to too many if the relationship was still empty we needed to fill it with more data and that part required us to have um uh, a custom my um excuse me migration and still even if it was only one field we do that uh we always decided that having to create at least the same number of entity you have in your model, you need to create NS entity mapping instances. You could have even more, plus a couple of classes for the mapping model, plus the description of the mapping of the entity model file. We've decided that it was not worth it and that we should try to document uh, the mapping file that is R2Diff in Git uh, on our way. So we just end up having taking screenshots, like here's the changes and I light them in red. Here is this entity mapping we change and, and also have it in text file. So at least it's easy to copy and paste. Uh, so we're kind of building this small diff even if the file is hard to diff. But again, if you want to do everything by code, the same way that you might have heard one time that you can also do your entity model by code. That's the same thing with the mapping model. You can all do it doing by code if you are like fully i don't like like those uh nib and zibs and like weird model that uh like file model that apple has okay and i think that's wrap it up for the uh yeah it does wrap it up for every migration it was a lot i know but i do hope that learning about Cordish, uh Cordata migration was great and you liked it because i really enjoyed that uh, in the past week or so so that's what it was first a great learning experience for me but it was also weirdly fun uh it is a type of problem that at first you're like oh my god that's going to be painful and i kind of need to like re-immerse myself but then you kind of like peel one layer oh wait a sec like okay this order doesn't make sense how is this order defined That's when I've learned about this entity mapping order in the file. And I'm trying to peel one layer after the other to go to the end goal of having uh, my custom class to just run code every time we recreate the relationship and then just coding that uh, was really uh, fun and sometimes uh, mind-boggling. But (laughs) I think that's the joy of Core Data. And I... And that's related to that. I think that's why, like you've heard a lot of like resentment uh, against Corda, because there's again, it's not perfect. There's multitude of reason to dislike it, but weirdly enough, me understanding more this hard part of it made me enjoy the framework even more. Um, so again, it's a complex framework. Yeah, people are quick to dismiss it, but I do hope that with this episode, you've learned more about it, and maybe you. Maybe try to reconsider it next time you have to do this choice. The migration system when you do migrate data is powerful while not being simple. It is challenging at first. But again, if you spend the time, you'll realize quickly, I think with a lot of the the objects and description, you realize quite quickly when you think about all the different possibilities you can have in your migration, that it is a quite powerful thing. And it is a bit sad in my in the end that Apple is not really explaining it clearly, because while complex, it is powerful, and people I think would people would give it more love. I, in the end, if people were to understand it better,
0: that entire conclusion also applies to Final
1: Fantasy VIII's junction <laughs> system. <laughs> oh wow! Oh wow! Uh, last but not least, I have two dawn signs I want to mention. Again, um, it's funny these days. Like I, I don't want to make this a kind of a swift versus Objective-C discussion. But again, uh, Corelata is relying a lot on Objective-C runtime functionalities. Uh, the expression based language in the mapping file is finicky and prone to errors. Like if you do a typo, there's no compiler to tell you do a typo. You just run and it breaks at runtime. Um, so knowing that and a lot of the evolution we see with swift i'm quite curious how Cordedoc will evolve to apple's new thinking of development language development frameworks and like their experiment with swift ui and dsls um again i don't know i know nobody can tell me about that but i wish that like w- i hope that coreda won't die with it because it is a powerful tool that can do a lot for you and also like be follow you as a good friend that can also slap you in the back of the and the back on the head sometimes while you do your uh but it's a good friend that can guide you through your uh, software development journey with your product uh and has a lot of tools uh, if you take the time to learn them
0: yeah i'm curious and also terrified of what they're going to do on the data layer side of things with Swift. I think it's pretty sure they're going to do like Swift UI and like more or less reboot completely and not call it core data uh, because there's too much baggage associated with what core data is.
1: I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised that they would be like, here's a new thing. And then,
0: but given how little I'm enjoying what I've played with in Swift UI, I don't think i'm going to be that excited <laughs> for it
1: okay that's that's interesting uh, does it mean that you started to work on your some of your personal project that you've entered at in the past few episodes uh
0: i all i can say is like i have written some swift ui code and i don't like it so far
1: okay that's hey that's interesting so that was it for me for co- this mystifying corded migration
0: all right uh if you want to find the show notes for this episode you can go and find it at a little sp- <laughs> possibilitynet slash 142. You can also find all of our episodes at LimitlessPossibility.net as long as I pay the hosting after this episode is recorded because we are at $1 balance on our account. Uh-oh. <laughs> we'll be good. We'll be good. Uh, you can find the podcast on Twitter at underscore podcast. that's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast or you can find us individually on Twitter. I'm at Sakurina. That's S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A and you can find a good idea at
1: Le Connoche, that's L-U-C-C-O-N-O-U-C-H-E. And I would like to hear some of your past personal experience with Cordata and its migration system. If you have any. If you have any, of course.
0: Of course. <laughs> See you in two weeks. See you in two weeks.